What's up, people? Jose Nino is back with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined by Josh Young, the founder and president of Republic Capital Management. Before we dive right in, Josh, tell my audience about what you do. Yes, thanks, Jose, for having me on. First, a little housekeeping, quick disclaimer. Everything I say is for informational and educational purposes. Nothing I say should be construed as investment advice. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. And you should always consult with your qualified investment or tax professional before making any decisions. Thanks again, Jose, for having me on. Real quick background, I run an investment firm here in Austin, Texas. We manage investment portfolios for our clients. And beyond just doing the investing part, we help our clients manage their ownership. So we, you know, if you invite buy shares in a stock of company, we handle the proxy voting for you. We'll vote your shares at corporate annual meetings so that, you know, anything that's going on at the corporation that you're not happy with, or there's shareholder proposals up that you don't agree with, we handle the voting of your shares for you as part of our service. And yeah, been in business for about three years now, and uh, it's growing well. And then obviously with the increased integration or merging of corporate and political power in this country, it's becoming a lot more important for people to be aware of what they're investing in, the companies that they're investing in, and then how those companies are behaving in the public sphere. Yeah, I just wanted to get into some of the political stuff because there is a pretty strong political undertone to what your firm does. And what would you say separates your investment firm from others? So most financial firms, financial advisors, and companies out there do not handle the proxy voting of their shares. They leave it up to their clients to do it themselves. And most people, when they get the information, you know, the proxy statements or information via email or traditional mail, they put them right in the the trash, mostly because they don't understand what it is. There's a lot of fine print involved. And finally, people just don't have the time in their day to do the research and to fill out the ballots and send them in. So it, you know, it robs a lot of people of a voice that they have that they may not be aware that they have. And then secondly, a lot of the financial firms don't do it just because it's a cost to them, right? They, they would have to hire people to do the proxy voting and keeping track of the records and doing the analysis. So a lot of firms don't do it. We do it for our clients. And we think it's, an, you know, obviously an important area, you know, for companies and boards of directors and CEOs to be reminded of who the shareholders are, who the owners of the company are, and that they're not doing things that could harm the company and ultimately the shareholders, right? Because of personal reasons, you know, the CEO wants to have a political vendetta on somebody or wants to take a public position for personal reasons when it could be at the expense of the company, of the profits, performance of the company, and that's at odds with the shareholders too. Many investment firms, they they do the first part, which is important, helping you build an investment portfolio that's designed for your goals in mind and your financial situation. But they stop once the investments are made. And in reality, after the investments are made, the ownership part comes in. Because once you've invested in something, you've become a part owner and you know, you want to exercise that power as an owner while you're holding the stock or whatever investment that you're in. You know, and again, a lot of companies, as you've mentioned, Jose, are becoming more involved in the political sphere 
through various political pressures, nonprofits, other activist shareholders are pressuring these companies to take public positions on, you know, legislation and social policy. And if they're going to be acting that way, then shareholders should be keeping them in line. I'm a big believer that, you know, companies should be sticking to making a profit, you know, within the bound of the law. And beyond that, they shouldn't really be concerning themselves with overall social policy. Think of it a form of uh, checks and balances. I don't want government corporations to be merging into one entity. They should be separate. They have separate roles to play in society. But a lot of this ESG stuff that's being promoted is really it's stakeholder capitalism, which I think is another name for communism. The idea that the company is responsible for all of society, you know, isn't proper and it should be pushed back against. But a lot of people don't realize that their investments are being used to advance that cause. And, you know, if there's anything that any of the listeners take away from today's meeting or podcast is that, you know, they have a lot more power and influence than they realize. And it's really just a matter of educating people on where they can go to make that influence that they should be making. Yeah, just to double down on this whole woke capitalism trend that's been taking place in like the past decade or so, you're definitely seeing otherwise, well, previously apolitical firms take on these like progressive causes such as LGBT, global warming, and other leftist hobby horses. Based on your experience in the financial sector, which have been like the most egregious examples of like woke signaling that you've seen among these corporations? Well, if you take a look at, you know, some of the statements that were made by Disney's CEO a few months back on the quote unquote, don't say gay bill in Florida, that was something that he was probably pressured to do either by activist shareholders, a subset of their employees, or just, you know, leftist nonprofits that basically perform a shakedown on these companies that says, you're going to take a public position on this, or we're going to make a PR nightmare for you. Well, he goes out and makes statements about a piece of legislation that is a popular, wildly popular in the state of Florida, and B, that he probably hasn't done a lot of research on and is not even in a position to be commenting on. But what does that do? That brings negative headlines to Disney, and it may have offended a large segment of their customer base. And you know they're not going to go to the parks or, or watch the movies if he's becoming a politician in the public sphere. And that hurts the bottom line. And if you're a shareholder in Disney, you know, either directly or indirectly using, you know, mutual funds or whatever, that hurts the performance of your investment. And that's not really, you know, what Disney should be doing. You know, if the CEO wants to donate or vote a certain way on, on their own time as a private citizen, that's one thing. But to be acting in a role of a corporation and speaking as the face of a corporation, you know, short-sighted in a position that he shouldn't be in because their customers are across the political spectrum and they should, you know, at the very least be taking a position of neutrality. You saw something similar with Coca-Cola's CEO last year making comments on some of the election fortification laws that were, you know, working their way through the Georgia legislature. Coca-Cola's headquartered in Georgia. He starts making comments about, you know, changes and voting, you know, showing ID and, and voting policy in the state of Georgia when you know, that's not his area of expertise. Nobody hired, you know, shareholders don't hire CEOs to make political statements. The job of Coca-Cola CEO is to you know, be a beverage company and put out a good product and make a good profit for shareholders. It isn't to be threatening state legislators and other, you know, 
democratically elected officials on policy that has nothing to do with selling beverages. It's not a public company, but you saw the same thing with Major League Baseball moving the All-Star game out of Georgia because of something that the state legislator was doing. And, you know, again, that's not the purpose of Major League Baseball or any of these other organizations to be taking a position on what elected officials are doing. That's that's why we have legislators. That's their job. Businesses are there to you know, provide a service or a product at a profit. And, you know, Major League Baseball exists for entertainment. It shouldn't be. But that's the problem. That's what stakeholder capitalism gets you. It's everyone meddling in everyone else because in theory, in their theory, everyone's a stakeholder. Therefore, everyone has a right to pontificate or react to everything else that goes on in society. In reality, that's not what the leader of a company should be doing, a CEO should be doing. Very interesting stuff. And you've been in the financial sector for some time. Was there any particular moment that you saw that things really got out of hand when it came to like this woke trend that just like motivated you to become more involved in setting up this type of business that you have to give conservative shareholders more power against these like woke corporations? Yeah, you know, for me, it started... Well, so I've been in the industry for a little over 15 years. And historically, activism in the investment world was through divestiture movements. So you saw it with, I think it even goes, probably dates back to the 1990s and divesting from South Africa. Or you see the big endowments for colleges divesting from oil. So that whole strategy is, well, we don't like a certain industry. We don't like you know, a certain location or a certain country to do business in. And so we're not going to invest in those companies. So it was really investing by omission or expressing their views by omission. We're just not going to invest in these types of companies. So that was the whole divesting movement. But what's happened over probably the last five to 10 years is there's become this concept of active ownership. And so rather than not investing in the oil companies, as an example, because you don't believe in carbon fuels, it became, why don't we invest in these companies and try to control them to affect the change that we want? And so the left has really been at this active ownership stuff for you know probably a decade now. And once they had some initial success, they've continued to expand into more and more areas and more and more policies and ideas and beliefs to really try to affect everything as ownership. Now, they've been able to do that because... In recent decades, there's been a big change in the financial system. And so if I could take a quick moment to kind of give you the backstory of how we got to where we are. Traditionally, people bought stocks, right? So 50, 60 years ago, most shares of stock that were publicly traded were held by individuals. Could have been wealthy individuals, middle-class folks, but people went out and bought shares of stock. And, you know, in the middle of the 20th century, this concept of diversification came about, and it's really driven by mathematics. You can improve your risk reward on an investment or on an investment portfolio if you bought a lot of different stocks and investments that were not correlated with each other. So we kind of moved away from investing in individual stocks to investing in a group of stocks to hopefully give you improved performance, at least from a volatility perspective. The problem 50 years ago was that it was very costly to do a trade. It costs a lot of money and commissions to go out and buy a share of stock. 
it wasn't until the online brokers, you know, in the 1990s came about that really drove down the cost of trading. And going back, you know, to the mid 20th century, when it was very expensive to trade, you couldn't really get a diversified portfolio by buying a bunch of different stocks, because that would be a bunch of trades and you'd pay a lot of money in commissions and most people couldn't afford it, or it would just destroy their returns because commissions were so high. So the financial community created mutual funds. And really what a mutual fund is, is it's a legal entity that owns stocks and then people buy a share in that legal entity. The benefit to the shareholders or to the retail investor is they get diversification with one trade. So if you've got a mutual fund that holds 50 stocks, you buy one, you know, you do one trade to buy a share of that mutual fund, you get investment exposure to 50 stocks. So you, you know, your commissions are much lower than if you had to go out and buy all 50 stocks separately. So mutual funds in the late 20th century became very popular. And then ETFs, which are similar to a mutual fund, they have a little bit, they trade a little bit differently, and there's different tax implications of that. But those started becoming very popular in the last 20 years. So we've arrived at a situation where most people don't own individual stocks. Their investments, whether it's in their 401k, retirement plan, their personal account is in mutual funds and ETFs. And these products have grown tremendously over the last several decades. So that nowadays, most shares of stock that are held are held by institutions. They're not held by individuals like they used to be 50 years ago. So whether it's a pension plan, a bank, an insurance company, or a mutual fund or ETF, these are institutions. They're not individuals. They're legal entities that own stocks, usually on the behalf of someone else. Now, here is the important piece, and there's anything that people take away from today's discussion, I want it to be this. The mutual funds and ETFs, when you invest in those, yes, you retain an economic right to the underlying stocks, but you forfeit the voting rights of those shares. They transfer to the company that's managing the mutual fund. People need to be reminded, a share of stock is a part ownership in a company, And as a part owner, you have a say in how that company is run and operated. The most important piece of that being at shareholder meetings, you vote for who sits on the board of directors. And the job of a board of directors for a company is to be the eyes and ears for the shareholders. Make sure management's staying in line. Make sure, you know, the company's being well run, that the business strategy is being implemented properly. Make sure, you know, audits are all clean and everything's being done by the book. Well... Now that people invest through mutual funds and ETFs, those voting power of all those shares are being stripped and moved to the investment firms that run the funds. So mutual funds and ETFs strip ownership from control. So the owners of these companies, which are the shareholders, they're entitled to the profits, everything else, but they've been removed from the operational oversight of the company. And so these voting rights transfer to these large investment firms that run these funds. And what's happened over the last you know, couple of decades is there's been two or three companies that have become so large that they control the voting rights of vast chunks of shares of stock. You know, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street. One of those companies is probably the largest controlling shareholder in most of the publicly traded companies in this country. One of those three businesses, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, 
one of those is probably, you know, is typically the largest shareholder in, say, I don't know, Coca-Cola or American Express or any of these other companies because of these funds. And so what a lot of activists have done, they've exploited this. Now that the voting power of so many shares has been consolidated in a few financial firms, they go to those financial firms and they say, you know what, you're going to start putting some pressure on company ABC to take a position on some policy issue, say it's environmental. And if you don't, you know, we'll make problems for you, Vanguard or BlackRock. And then so these companies, because they control the voting rights, have a lot of pressure over the board of directors of these publicly traded companies. And that's where the pressure is coming from for these companies to start acting like they've been acting with regards to public policy. You know, something interesting took place last year. There was an activist investment firm, fairly new. It's called Engine One, you know, started by some leftist activists. And they wanted to get ExxonMobil to move away from oil and gas. And so what they were able to do is they want, they put up some nominees to be, you know, nominees to sit on the board of directors. And what they did is, you know, they started with a lot of these state-run pension funds. So like CalPERS, which is the California Public Employee Pension Fund, which has, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. They went to, you know, like the New York Teachers Union Pension Funds and, you know, similar entities like that. They got the support of those. And then, then those entities went to some of these large financial firms and said, if you want to continue doing business with us, we want you to you know, take these positions. In this case, vote for a certain set of individuals to be on the board of directors, or we'll take our business away from you. And we want you to kind of promote these electors, not just with our shares, but with your other clients' shares or the shares that you control and the funds that you manage. And so they were able to get enough support and controlling votes on a majority of shares. And they were able to get you know, three outside directors appointed to the board of directors of ExxonMobil at the expense of some existing directors that were on the board. And so now they've got a foot in the door in how ExxonMobil is run. They've got a couple of people on the board of directors. The board of directors have a lot of power in the oversight of a company. And they're trying to promote ExxonMobil from being a an oil and gas company to being a renewable energy company. And so, you know, traditionally, I would have said, or most people would have said, well, if you don't like oil and gas, don't buy shares of ExxonMobil. And if you think, you know, solar panels and windmills are a good investment, then, you, you know, there's companies out there that specialize in, in that type of energy and you would invest in them. But their approach is, well, let's just take over ExxonMobil and change how they run their business and change what kind of products or energy sources they use. So that's kind of the active ownership approach where you're trying to take over an entity to affect the change you want versus just not investing in it in the first place. A lot of the downstream effects that I don't think a lot of people have thought about is, well, if you control you know, a company like ExxonMobil, you're controlling their lobbying budget. You're controlling where they're spending their money or doing business. So there's a lot of secondary effects that can come into play with something like this in terms of yeah, affecting the flow of lobbying dollars, you know, for our government. In fact, that's one of the one of the reasons why I got into this or started this approach. You know, and I think you would agree with me, Jose, that there's probably too much money in politics. And for a long time, we've been trying to get money out of politics. You know, it takes so much money for somebody to run for office and get elected. 
they have to raise a lot of money, a lot from you know PACs and other entities to get that money. And then you know, part of the problem with politics is they, you know, they're in debt to their donors when they get elected. They've got to give a return on investment to the you know political action committees that donated to them. And so my you know one thought process was, well, how do we get money out of politics? And too many people were trying to solve the problem as voters. But if you really kind of work your way through the flow of money in our society, well, political action committees get their money from wealthy individuals, from companies and corporations. And well, okay, the money's coming from companies and corporations. Who controls that? And if you kind of move backwards through the system, you realize that all oh, the you know shareholders own the company and most shareholders directly or indirectly through mutual funds or other pooled investment vehicles are the same people that, you know, citizens like you and me that vote. And so, you know, a big thought process I had was, well, if you want to get money out of politics, try to do an end around run, right? Rather than trying to, you know, change campaign finance laws, push back as owners of a company. And so that's what got us kind of thinking about politics and money a few years ago. And then you know, through what's happened the last few years, it's really kind of morphed into the increase in, in ESG and the influence companies have over public policy, not just from the money perspective, but from the policy perspective as well. I want to touch upon ESG actually, because yeah, that stands for environmental, social, and corporate governance. And it's a big fad in the corporate space. Could you explain to my audience what this is and how it relates to woke capital? Yeah, so ESG, as you mentioned, is environmental, social, and corporate governance. And it's really trying to analyze a company through that lens. So what is the company's operational impact on the environment? Now, what is a company's operational impact on the communities that their factories in, for example? So, you know, a big push right now is looking at supply chains. So you'll see shareholders put up using the social piece of ESG, they'll put up pressure on a company to source their inputs or be mindful of the source of inputs to their business by how, let me think how to say this. So yeah, let's say I'm making t-shirts, right? Well, what is the nature of the labor at the factory where I get my wool from or where the t-shirt is manufactured overseas So they're trying to focus on supply chain issues. How does the company that I purchase stuff from, how do they treat their employees or how do they treat their community? And to get these big companies to only buy from, you know, buy their inputs from companies that are behaving in a certain social way. Going to the environmental side, you know, traditionally, and we can all agree that a company shouldn't be, you know, dumping toxic waste into, you know, a river or stream, but it doesn't stop there, right? You know, it's, well, a company should only be getting electricity from its factory or from renewable resources, as an example. So the ESG really gets into applying these metrics to the day-to-day operations of a company. The corporate governance piece, same thing in terms of, well, there are some good pieces to the corporate governance piece. I, I will say that, you know, one trend we've seen in recent years is the CEO of a company shouldn't also be the chairman of the board. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that the board of directors is supposed to be the eyes and ears of shareholders over a company. 
But if the CEO is the chairman of the board, well, they're kind of acting as their own boss in a way because they can kind of control. If the CEO is doing something inappropriate at a company and they're also the chairman of the board, they can kind of distract the board or push the board in a different direction so they may not find things that the CEO doesn't want them to find. So there's been some good pieces, I think, in the corporate governance piece on how the management of a firm operates. But a big part of the E and the S is that environmental and social stuff. And it goes back to stakeholder capitalism, right? If you believe that a company has responsibility over society as a large, and then you marry that with companies need to be mindful of the environment or of social goals, combine those two together, the company then has to kind of try to control part of society to work towards those goals, right? You know, another trend that we've seen recently is you know, back to the social aspect is suppliers, you know, again, for a company's inputs to their manufacturing process should be purchasing a certain amount of inputs from, say, a minority owned business. You know, the goals there might be honorable, but the job of a company is to buy the best inputs at the lowest price. You should be indifferent to who the owner of the supplying company is uh, in terms of, you know, their social demographic or anything like that. I see. Now, I want to go back to this concept of active ownership, which is pretty intriguing. Which companies are the most notorious for engaging in this practice? From the investment side or the companies themselves? I mean, Investment side. Yeah, that like specialize in this activity. Well, there's really two groups. There's the very large investment firms that we mentioned earlier that control large blocks of shares, they get a lot of pressure to be activist owners just because of their size. You know, there's a, if you can pressure BlackRock to take a certain position, they control a lot of shares. They're going to have a much higher likelihood of affecting that policy than, you know, say a smaller investment company that doesn't control much. So the big investment firms like that do. And then at the other extreme, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot, especially on the left, there's a lot of smaller boutique investment firms who represent, you know, smaller amounts of money, but they take on a lot of like-minded clients, typically wealthy ones, and then they'll leverage that to, you know, do PR campaigns on a corporation or, you know, writing investor relations departments on behalf of their shareholders saying, you know, we represent shareholders in your company, we, we want you to do ABC, or we don't want you to do DEF. So there's some boutique investment firms that have, especially on the left, that have cropped up that they're really focused more on that active ownership than they are on investing, right? They might go take some client money to invest in company ABC because they want, they want to affect change at ABC versus we should invest in ABC because it, you know, it's got a good return potential on our investment. So there's firms that kind of specialize in different motivations behind the investment. So I think those are the two big areas. And then the last one for these activist owners is a lot of the big state pension funds in Democrat-run states. So CalPERS, which is the California Employee Retirement Fund, is a big one. I think the New York City Education Teacher Pension Fund, I forget the exact acronym for them, but they're another big one. So you're seeing a lot more of that with some of these you know, large state-run pension funds. Now, have there been 
any successful quote unquote shareholder revolts against companies that get too overzealous with their woke signaling? I can't think of any. I think the pushback so far has had more success in, well, you know, take Disney as an example. The successful pushback, I think, on them came from local, the local state government pushing back and, you know, probably customers threatening not to use their product or go to their theme parks anymore. The pushback to ESG, I think, has had mostly has been done so far from the consumer angle. We're not going to buy your product or service if you, you know, keep pushing this concept or this idea, right? You know, if Disney's going to take a position on this don't say gay bill, well, we're not going to take our kids to Disney anymore. We'll go to some other theme park. So there's been some success there. But, you know, the anti-ESG really hasn't done anything from the ownership perspective. So yes, there's been success as consumers of a company or customers of a company, but the anti-ESG side really hasn't started to leverage the ownership side, the, the stockholder side of the business you know, pushing back on corporate boards and threatening not to vote against. The most powerful thing you can do as a shareholder is is go to the directors and say, I don't like the way this company is being managed. I'm going to vote my shares against you sitting on the board at the next year's annual shareholder. That gets their attention pretty quickly. So from that perspective, I don't know of a lot off the top of my head that have had success, you know, stopping these policies, some of this ESG stuff from that side. From your experience promoting your business and getting just more involved in helping like conservatives take on woke capital. Are you seeing more people on the right pick up on the importance of confronting woke capital and just becoming more engaged with the way they invest in companies? So taking a step back for a moment, you know, on the, the right slash populist slash libertarian side of our society, traditionally, most of us think about you know, if we want to change something in society, we focus on elections and the battlefield is really just around, you know, elections every two years. The biggest problem that I've encountered with talking to a lot of people on that side of the spectrum is they fail to understand how big the battlefield is. It's not just the elections for president or for governor. It's the elections for people on the board of directors of a company that happen every year. The left has understood this for some time, but I think the rest of society is playing catch up on that. And, you know, I think the younger generation, you know, on the conservative libertarian populist side is more aware of that idea that, you know, the battle is beyond just elected officials. It's every aspect of society, including as an investor or a shareholder. But I've found that uh, there's a big education problem out there. You know, we've discussed today a lot about you know, investing through mutual funds and the separation of the voting rights of shares of stock when you do that. Most people don't know that. Most people haven't been able to understand the mechanics behind why a firm like BlackRock or some of these larger investment firms can control so much. And so I've, you know, my experience out there is once people understand that, they're excited about what they can do with this new information, this new knowledge. But there's a big education problem because a lot of people don't realize that. And so a lot of my time, you know, is, is spent on educating people before they realize the significance of the service that we're trying to provide. So, yeah, to answer your question, Jose, I, I think there's 
there's a lot of people out there that just don't understand how this stuff works. And look, in fairness, most people are not interested by the financial markets. They're not interested in you know, looking at proxy statements and fine print. A lot of it is dry and boring at times, yeah. but they don't realize the significance of that. So I think the first yes. step really is just trying to educate people about it. Yeah, the dry and boring stuff is ultimately what sandbags and can create massive political change. That's something a lot of people need to realize that the flashy stuff you see on TV, that's really the end product of people doing a lot of tedious and repetitive work in the background that tends to be dry and boring, but that stuff is very important. It's like learning how to jab before throwing haymakers. And we should not underestimate the importance of getting into this type of stuff and getting the fundamentals down. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's the same thing in government. You know, obviously people that know how to push legislation through the process and knows all the, you know, the fine print and the legalities are going to have a lot more success than than those that don't. And the same is true in, in other areas of life as well. You know, if somebody's listening to the show right now and saying, well, where do I go to get more information or where do I go to, to try to fight back, you know, if you're managing your own money or something. I just mentioned speaking, and this is kind of gets into a little bit of the dry stuff, but this is important. If you do own shares of stock and you want to know, well, how do I vote those shares or, or where do I go to get information? You know, how, what does that process look like? You know, getting back to the educational piece, publicly traded companies have annual meetings every year, annual shareholder meetings. And at those shareholder meetings, there's usually... You know, people up for election to the board of directors. There's other shareholder proposals and management proposals that are put up for votes. And you can vote your shares. Now, you don't have to attend the annual meeting to do that. You can do it electronically or through the mail. So to, to kind of give you an example, you know, most companies, their fiscal year is, you know, January to December. At the end of the year, companies put together their annual report and they put together what's called their proxy statement. The proxy statement has a lot of information that's specific to the annual shareholder meeting. So it'll have the biographies of the directors and their work history and information about them in there. Typically has a lot of information about how senior management is compensated. It'll have information on how the board of directors is compensated and if other shareholders or institutions have put up shareholder proposals to change something about how the company's run or what have you, that information will be in those proxy statements. And if you go to any publicly traded company's website, so I think Amazon, right? If you go to Amazon.com, people go on there and they start you know, shopping for books and, and whatever it is that they want to buy. If you scroll down to the bottom of their website, there'll be a section called Investor Relations. And again, this is the case with, you know, all publicly traded companies. Somewhere on their website, there'll be an investor relations tab. And you click on that and it has all the information for shareholders. So on there, you'll find you know, information about the stock. You'll find information about dividends, annual reports, quarterly reports. You know, they'll have information on there about the articles of incorporation for the business. And they'll also have their proxy statements up there. So if you're ever looking for where to go find this information, if you are looking to vote your shares, is to go to the investor relations website of a company and find their proxy statement and start reading through that. Now, there's, again, a lot of dry, boring stuff in those proxy statements and fine print. 
But if you want to know anything about who sits on the board of directors and you know what their professional history is and you know who they are, that information will be in those statements. So if anyone's, you know, if you turn on TV and you're like, I don't like what's going on at Disney, you know, and you own shares of Disney, you know, the one thing you could do is go get the proxy statement off Disney's website, find the individuals that are on there. And by the way, they'll have information that's called investor relations. You know, these publicly traded companies have departments that answer inquiries and questions from shareholders. So you can write them and say, you know, look, I'm a shareholder of, you know, this company and I don't like ABC and, you know, I'd like an explanation or I want more information on why this decision was made. And so they'll have contact information on there for the investor relations department. Usually it's a mailing address or something that you can send stuff to. Fantastic stuff, man. I think this is a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation. But before we leave, Josh, where can my audience keep up with your work? Yeah, so the company website is therepublickcapital.com. And they can go on there and learn about our services. I've also got an email sign up on the website. So you can put your email address in. We you know, usually send out an email you know, every week or every other week on various you know, topics or things that we come across that we want to share with people. I know right now we're kind of wrapping up proxy voting season. Most companies' annual meetings you know, happen in you know, April, May. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we'll comment on some of the votes that we took or, you know, things that we've noticed at this year's annual meetings that, you know, maybe haven't come up in the past that, you know, keeping an eye on trends and, and things of that nature. So if you want to go to the website, you can sign up for our email to stay up to date on some of that stuff. But the, yeah, the website's, again, that's therepublickcapital.com. Thank you again, Josh, for coming on to the show. Thank you. And thank you to my audience for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.